0: I guess I'd like to begin with just an observation. I think that if you took all of the things that Jesus taught and kind of boiled it down, I think it comes down to two things. Generosity and forgiveness. Generosity to counter the, the greed that so often can take over selfishness and the lust for power and tolerating injustice and the lack of compassion. Jesus taught a lot about generosity and hospitality, sharing what we have. And then the other thing that I think breaks God's heart is that, that feeling of revenge, of getting even, of hate, judging other people, maybe even using violence, the refusal to forgive. And, of course, Jesus taught us so much about the need to forgive. And when we are caught up in greed or hate, those really become prisons in our heart. And when Jesus talks about uh, turning our lives around, he's talking about liberation from that kind of a prison. I want to talk today about that second aspect, forgiveness, and dealing with uh, the things that cause us a, a, a lot of pain. So, for example, uh, in our basketball league, we we tend to want to keep score when we play, right? Right, kids. When we play, it's pretty important to have a scoreboard that works, and uh, so, and then to have scorekeepers. And have you ever been at a game where the score was wrong, and people in the stands are kind of, hey, wait a minute, don't they have two more points? But well, wait a minute, what? Something's wrong here. And you know, and one mom is starting to, you know, yell at the official, like, hey, can't you see what's going on? And no, that's never happened to me. I'm just making this up. So um, no. So you know, so the score is wrong. Everybody gets in this little uproar we've got to correct it's it got to be right so let me ask you this question what if there were no score would you still play would you still play kids would you play if no one was keeping score somehow it seems like keeping score is so darn important in a lot of ways not just in basketball I'm talking about in all of life You know, it's kind of like most of the time, the way we live, we know who is on our side and who's against us. We know who our friends are and who are our enemies, who are the good guys and the bad guys. We know who to trust and who not to trust. And we keep score. And then Jesus cuts through it all with some teaching. And I'm going to read the first one today. It's from the Gospel of Luke. He says this. To you who are ready for the truth, listen up. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. If someone takes your coat, give them your shirt also. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others what you would have them do to you. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? And if you do good just to those who are good to you, or if you lend only to those who can repay you, what good is that to you? Even sinners will do that. So, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting anything in return. And then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. Because God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So be merciful just as God is merciful. Don't judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Wow. Wow. I could say this is the word of the Lord, but I don't know if I would get an amen for that. That's pretty tough. Jesus isn't scolding us. He's not trying to give us a romantic lesson about how to feel good about everybody as if everybody is nice. This is really a statement saying that there is more to life than keeping score, more than our little moral categories where life is reduced to a simple set of yes and no, black and white, Jesus says if you reduce your life to the simple practice of loving your friends and hating your enemies, of being generous to those you trust and resistant whenever there's a risk, well, anybody can do that. You know, don't you? You know differently. You know that you have the freedom to act differently. You know about the large purposes of God and you are called to act concretely to be a part of these purposes in your life. So what it comes down to is, are you going to keep score in all of the ways that you live your life? Or are you going to trust in a larger Dimension, a larger narrative that is going on in the world and that you're a part of. Jesus said, Don't judge, forgive, and give, and share, and yield, and be generous. Because God's powerful generosity moves through and over and in all of our categories. Our faith invites us to be open to God's generosity and to receive it for ourselves and for others. You got that? But that's Jesus saying, you should, you should do this, you should forgive, you should share. Those are called imperative statements. But how do you do that? It seems naive, unrealistic. Why would you even want to do that? Aren't you just going to be taken advantage of? I mean, let's live in the real world for once. How about it, Jesus? Jesus was speaking to victims of injustice. I mean, the people he was talking to were at the bottom. Their legal rights had been trampled upon. The economy was rigged against them. They were very poor. And they were, in a sense, oppressed. And so... Jesus is not idealistic about what the world is like. And we can look around in our own lives. Who doesn't understand what it means to be treated unfairly? Who hasn't experienced a broken promise or disloyalty against them? Who hasn't ever felt beyond the realm of relationships just in I guess you could say in the natural world, a sense of a loss of control, maybe a loss of health or capability, a loss of a job or status. It is easy to feel like in some way or another we have been victimized. And maybe it's true. In fact, as much as we celebrate the wonder and the beauty and the joy of working with kids in our church... We know that one in three girls and one in five boys will experience some kind of abuse in their lives. Way too often it's happening in the church. And so victimization is real. Evil is real. I mean, there's a guy in Chicago, who's the actor who's faked his own victimization? I guess he has. That's the, that's the, uh, um, the current Story. I don't even know what to think about that. But there's plenty of real abuse to go around. And Jesus is not saying to those who have experienced that kind of abuse that He's not saying that you should excuse the perpetrator or that you should take the blame on yourself or the shame on yourself or that you should minimize the hurt or the damage that has been done, that you should just try to kill the person with kindness. That is not what Jesus is saying when he says, love your enemy. We need to ask ourselves today, can we even imagine, do we even want a world where we are in community with, at table with, our enemies? people who have hurt us, people that we don't trust. Do we want that? Because that's the vision at at the end of the age that we see, right? So into this difficult world comes a narrative from the Old Testament that may be able to shed some light. It's, it's once upon a time. It's not an imperative literature. It's the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph, the youngest brother, big family, all these older brothers. But he's the favorite. He's the baby, and his dad, Jacob, loves him the most. And, the, and he knows it because he's got this special coat. And he wears that coat around all the time just to rub it in the face of his brothers. And his brothers hate him. They, they resent him. They probably resent their dad too. They can't say that. But boy, they'll take it out on Joseph. So here we have a family that is so broken. And eventually the brothers decide to kill their little brother. And then as they're about to kill him, they say, you know, we can do even better than that. We can profit off him. So they sell him into slavery. He gets sent to Egypt as a slave and put in prison we know the rest of the story how eventually he rises to the top as pharaoh's chief economic advisor and you know he his life is turned around and then wouldn't you know it a famine hits and uh, his brothers who are his were everybody starving back where his brothers family is so they come to Egypt looking for food and who do they meet the chief economist of the Egyptian empire, Joseph. But they don't know it's him. And so Joseph's standing before his brothers. They're begging for food. And Joseph is trying to decide what to do. What would you do? Think about it. So Joseph, here's the story, the end of the story in Genesis. Joseph could no longer control himself. He cried out, have everyone leave here. So he was left only with his brothers. And he wept so loudly that everyone in the whole building heard him crying. This is such a painful story. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. How is my father? Is he still alive? But the brothers weren't even able to answer him because they were so terrified at his presence. And wouldn't you be? They were seeing a ghost. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come up here, get close to me. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. But don't be distressed or angry because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine. And for the next five years, there's going to be more famine. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives by a great deliverance, so that it was not you who sent me here, it was God. And then he threw his arms around his brothers and wept and hugged them. Wow. His brothers had tried to kill him They had abused him, and now he had the opportunity to get even. If he were keeping score, then it's his time to catch up. And he had the power to do it. But Joseph apparently had been doing some inner work. He had been taking a hard look at his life. And so he was willing to entertain the possibility that there might be a hidden mysterious purpose of God for his life that is beyond the scorekeeping, willing to trust there could be a larger purpose being acted out right there, and that he must honor it and respond to it, even if it means denying his inclination to get even. And so he says, I'm your brother, I am not going to continue the vicious cycle of fear and hate and violence that you have begun. I'm going to end it. The cycle of violence is over and I'm going to act in kindness. He breaks the cycle. He ends the scorekeeping because he's willing to trust in a purpose for his life that is greater than he can see. Do you get that? He is no longer defined by being stuck in a hole by his brothers or sold into slavery. He's not defined by that rejection and that hurt. He, his identity is rooted in something much more providential and good that he can't even explain. He says, God sent me, not you. And so Jace, uh, Joseph gives his brothers food and land And he protects them, and he moves from resentment to generosity. Now, in his trust, Joseph decides not to let the smallness of his brothers dictate the terms of his future. He's not saying, you know, guys, everything happens for a reason. He's not saying, you gave me lemons, I'm going to make lemonade. He's not saying, you know, it was just fate that I ended up here. He's not saying those things. He's saying that I have become aware of something at work in the world, in my life, that transcends this painful family relationship. That transcends my fear and my hate and the scorekeeping My life is larger than I imagined and I want to embrace the largeness that is God's gift in my life. And so I'm going to act differently now. You see how that can enable something like what Jesus is talking about? You know, we live in a culture I don't have to tell you this, it's really a mean-spirited kind of culture in many ways. We know that there uh, are so many examples around us of the kind of scorekeeping that Jesus speaks about. And we know that because God is generous, that we need to be the ones to resist and counter That mean spiritedness that is so hateful and hurting. So, when we are in conversations and in situations where people are talking about morality as if they have all the answers and we are tempted to join in, I know what's right, I know the truth, I've got the answer. Be careful. We act as if we know fully, too fully the mind of Christ. Or when we look at economic relationships in the world and we know that there is this great division between haves and have-nots, and we sometimes are told that poor people, it's their problem, it's their responsibility, Uh, and what really do they have to do with me? As if they are of no interest, this community, this wider community or even in our families, families where resentments can, can simmer and unresolved abuse can linger. Our families, like Joseph's, become adversarial, a powder keg of hate and fear and resentment. That happens. That happens in our lives. And when we fear that we will not be able to keep score. We, we get angry. We try to figure out how am I going to settle this and make justice happen as if it's up to me to manage and keep things coming out right. We fear we will lose control and moral responsibility if we're too nice, if we're too forgiving. But consider it will not do to reduce life to more our moral calculus because we will end up becoming grim and selfish. So when we live according to our fears and our hate, our lives become small and lacking the deep generosity of God. So if you find some part of your life where your daily round has grown thin and controlling and resentful, then these texts are for you because life with God is much, much larger, shattering our little categories of control and scorekeeping, and permitting us to say that God's good purposes have led us well beyond ourselves, have led us to give and create life where we would not have imagined. The Apostle Paul, it is thought, had some sort of physical affliction, maybe a disability. But at one point he heard a voice that said, My grace is sufficient for you. You are enough as you are. Amen.